I was not long ago in Flint, Michigan, there to speak at a series of meetings that engaged not just the Church of God, but hosted by the Church of God, which invited people from all over the city to come. And each evening, there were a series of pastors who were seated on the platform who were guests, and as was the custom of the place, every meeting began with the introduction of the pastors. And first there would be the right Reverend Dr. So-and-so from St. Andrews. And then there was the bishop uh, from Greater Light. And then there was the overseer from so-and-so other place. And there was the pastor and the senior pastor. And, and, and then at last one night, there was a woman seated right next to me. She was Apostle Ruby Johnson. Well, all of that was well and good enough by me. And uh, Herbert Banks, the pastor who was hosting, driving me after the evening meeting back to my place of rest, asked me, what did you think about Apostle Ruby? I said, well, she seemed like a lovely person. <laughs> oh, she was very friendly and welcoming, and I was proud to be on the platform with her. No, no, no. What did you think about her title, Apostle Ruby? I said, well, you know, in my understanding of theology, my tradition in the Christian faith, apostle is a word that I have seen as reserved for the first generation of believers, those who walked with Jesus personally. That's the theology with which I've been raised, but I understand the root meaning of the term, apostle meaning a sent one, and and if Sister Ruby goes by the name, I, I, I'm fine with it. He said, well, in her world, until she assumed the name apostle, she was never heard. But since she's been called an apostle, it's amazing how her influence has been. I said, well, that's good news. Always good to hear a good report. He said, well, what about you? I said, well, what about me? He said, what should we call you? I said, well, why don't you just call me Jim? And he said, no, no. You've come to a place now where you are, are the leader. You're, you're the bishop. You're the overseer. You're a kind of apostle. I said, but Herbert, Honestly, I understand and appreciate and value all the different swath of traditions in the Christian community and family, but, but for me, I, I'm not much about titles. I'm not so much about position. I'm not sure that Jesus cared much of those things in his life, though he was honestly revered and, and honored by the words used to describe him. But, but for me, I guess the people that know me best and the people that love me most, they call me Jim. And so I'm fine with that everywhere. He said, I respect that, Jim. But we also live up to the name we are called. We live up to that which we are described to be. And you must not forget that the calling of your office is not just to be the pastor of a local church, but, but to have a larger role across the movement. So for me, you're my bishop. I thought a long time about that because Herbert's a good man, and I respect him deeply, and he's got a great ministry. I'm still not being called bishop anywhere and not asking for that. But it caused me to think about the church of God, about living up to a name. Names do matter. The names of my children were carefully chosen. They were chosen from the Bible. My first son's name is Jacob. Jacob, which is the Greek equivalent of 
uh, pardon me, is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name James, which is my name given by my adopted family. And so Jacob and James are actually the same name, and so in the German language, they're indistinguishable. Uh, that way, we could call our firstborn after his father without getting it mixed up who we're really talking about. After Jacob was born, our second son, we named him Peter, the rock. I think that Peter James Lyon, who is my second son, like Jacob, our firstborn, in a way are living up to their names. It's amazing. Jacob has been my son who has given me the most difficulty growing up. He's now 32. He's settled down and a man of whom I am proud to call my boy. But growing up, Jacob was every bit Jacob of Genesis. I'm not suggesting that he put on hairy cloth to deceive his father, but he gave a go of it, I promise. Peter, on the other hand, always solid, an anchor, uh, a little bit prone maybe to run out and take a dare before he thought it through. But I promise you, Peter Lyon, he is a man of God who stands tall and others lean on him. Oh, and after Peter, we had a third son, Andrew. Andrew is my son that, that cannot get enough of going around the world and seeing other places and seeing other cultures. And he's the one who speaks about Jesus everywhere the first of my children to be baptized, the one who has this amazing way of interfacing with others and, and building bridges for Jesus' sake. Now, wait a minute. In the Bible, did that Andrew do the same? Ah, and our fourth son, Nathaniel. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, no pretense, no falsity, pure, honest, straightforward. That's Nathaniel I am. As our fourth son was born, my wife said, I'm sure glad there are only 12 disciples because I'm not keep doing this. <laughs> the point is that names do matter what we're called. And in the church of God, I thought it strange that we have, we've been so preoccupied with the name of the church. And yet in our organization, we have been so cavalier, it seems, in inventing names that have no root in scripture to describe those who are raised up in the church. Let's find general director in the Old or New Testament. You're just, it's not going to be there. Bishop, you might find. Overseer, you might find. Pastor, which means shepherd. You know, the word pastor is to shepherd. In the Latin language, if you read the 23rd Psalm in the Latin Vulgate translation of the scripture, it says, the Lord is my pastor. Pastoring and shepherding. These are all biblical nomenclatures. Perhaps we would all do well to think about the way in which we're organized and not just have the brand at the front door match up, but see how we match in the body. Which brings me to our brother, Adnair Jung, who's being called up to a high position of leadership in the church here in Jamaica. It's not my place to speak into how you organize yourselves or what you do or how you call, but I want you to know this man, this man in my judgment already, has become an overseer. He's already earned the respect and somehow has the appointment of heaven itself, for a unique season and role. You may want to just call him Adnair, and you might call me Jim, and you might call each another by your first names. But in the end, no matter what our role or responsibility, here's the wording that I think speaks so well of the scripture and about who we are. And that's when we call each other brother and sister. Because that describes the church as a family. And as you've already heard, I'm an adopted person. 
And when you're adopted, you never take family for granted. My whole life has been framed by the knowledge that but for the intervention of providence, I would have been left on the curb without a family. Family matters. And the church of God is a family. So, brothers and sisters, Brother Jones, I'm here to start my sharing today with this concept of organization. Because the subject at hand and the moment of the day is about the church and its organization. But if Jesus be the subject, how did he intend his church to fly? For what purposes? And how does he model for us in his family? He who would call us himself, himself, he would say, you are my brothers and sisters, my friends. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 22. It's a fascinating passage, and it has some truths that since I've become a leader in the Church of God in the United States, not by my design, but I will admit to say I believe now by the Lord's appointment. As I have wrestled with that and wondered what to do next, the Lord has made this scripture seared into my soul. I'm reading once more from the New Living Translation. It is the word of God. This is what it says. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, At my Father's direction, I've done many good works. For which of these are you going to stone me? And they replied, We're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Pray with me. Our Father, we're so thankful today for the chance we have to be in this room, in this assembly, once more, not by chance, but by your divine appointment. We're thankful for the high calling that you have considered us worthy to receive and for all the business that has already been transacted here today and what will still be done. And we're thankful, Lord, for your word that always provides for us light as we move forward. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit, the author of this sacred passage, and the one who has convicted us of sin and is now even transforming us by the renewing of our minds. May that same Holy Spirit speak to us through this word now. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not extinguish it. It's the famous opening volley of John's gospel. 
John, we believe, was the last to write his story of Jesus, of the four gospel narrators. And in those years of reflection, perhaps as an aged man ensconced on Patmos or wherever he was, maybe in Ephesus, we think, but wherever he was after looking back over a lifetime, after having lived with Jesus person to person up close, and then living with Jesus ascended to heaven in the same way that we live now, he crafted this magnificent gospel. And in it, he begins the whole narrative with this concept. Jesus is the very word of God. What is a word? A word is an idea. It's, it's a thought. It is the projection of something. We are created in the image of God. How so? Are we created in the physical image of God? Is God a physical being? Ah, our scripture tells us God is a spirit. But we know that God came in human form in the person of Jesus, but that's long after the creation story of Eden. How are we created in the image of God? What is it that bears the mark of the divine in us? Our physique? I think not. What then? Lots of time has been spent wrestling with this question, but let me give you this. Alone among all of creation, in the whole of the created order, there is only one being. There is only one thing created that, like God, can generate a thought and project it and make it come to life. Do you understand of what I speak? You know, as you look at this campus and see the buildings and, and the parking lot and the cars, I mean, everything about this square plot of land bears witness to the image of God. How so? Because some person somewhere in time thought of something, imagined it before it was, and brought it to life. Everything in this room that is not created by God directly, us, the chairs, the floor, the lights, everything, is, is the invention of humankind, the capacity that God gave us to think and to create ideas, and not just to have the ideas, but to project them. This is the image of God in us in a main way. God spoke the world into being. He thought it, he imagined it, and he spoke it, and it was. In a very real way, though we are not God and can never be, he has given us this reflection of his divine being. Because dogs and cats cannot bring this to life, the tree there cannot invent an idea and do anything with it. These other layers of creation below us can only function within what their genetic wiring allows. But for us, we can dream. We can do. And the word of God, Jesus, became flesh. The very ideas of God, the thoughts of God, the persona of God became flesh and dwelt among them. Now, in this period between the first and second comings, the scripture tells us that we are the body of Christ. So by the possession of his Holy Spirit, and I believe that the Holy Spirit can possess us individually and also move in the assembly, we are in our purest form animated by the Spirit of the living Christ, which brings us to the famous passages about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let this might be in you, that of our Lord Christ. You see, this is the the outflow of this idea that we are the body of Christ, which means we are in a real way in the period between his first and second advents, the flesh, the bone, the hands, the feet of Jesus. That brings us all back to why Jesus is a subject. Because if we are the body of Christ, we better be sure 
to be walking in a way that brings the ideas of heaven to life through our hands so that we can reflect that same word who is now resident within us even as we honor and worship him. Jesus, in this passage in John chapter 10, has a very important intersection in his world that tells us a great deal about how he lived and walked and how the ministry unfolded in his life. He's in the temple colonnade, Solomon's colonnade. Just January last, I was in the Holy Land with a group of 48 persons I was leading on a kind of pilgrimage through these sacred sites. I don't know if you've been to the Holy Land, but it's a great and wonderful place to go. And let me just say, if you'd like to go and haven't been, I'll take you. Christians Broadcasting Hope will again take a tour there in January of 2015, uh, pardon me, 2016. And so uh, I just throw that out. Love to have it. But as we were there, we had the privilege of going to the Temple Mount, which is not always accessible because there's so much political tension and drama and crisis. You can't always get to the top of the mountain on which sets the Al-Aska Mosque, considered to be uh, the third most holiest place in all of the Islamic world, and, and the Great Golden Dome, which is a separate building, but all built on what was the place of Herod's second temple and Solomon's first. And we had the chance that it just happened that a window opened that I could take my team up onto the top of the mountain. And there we stood. And we stood on the periphery exactly where Solomon's colonnade was. It's a sobering place to think that upon this mountaintop, on this plateau of a mountain overlooking the ancient city of Jerusalem, so often favored by God, that we stood in the place where Jesus spoke. And Jesus, of course, was a superlative teacher. He gathered crowds. People listened and hung on his words. He was a provocateur. People were not left in, in some kind of middle ground with Jesus. People fell into his sway or they became his opponents. And there on that tumble mount, we stood on that bright, cloudless day, in the hot sun, on the stones, where Jesus himself once walked. As I thought about Jesus there, teaching, what was it that gave him such power? How did he persuade so many? Well, of course, he was the word of God. He was the divine man. He had some, some opportunities and capacities that we just cannot know. But he was also the son of man. He was flesh and bone like you and me. And by the world's measure, who were not spiritually appraised, he was just one more teacher come out of the back country to try and turn the world around. How did he do it? How did he do it? Well, from this passage, you can know this. Jesus lived in such a way that he provoked his world to demand answers from him. Let me say that again. Jesus lived in such a way that the unbelieving world around him was provoked to demand some explanation. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're the Messiah? If that's what your game is, tell us plainly. When is the last time that any community in which the church of God was resident so lived in a way that it provoked the unbelieving world around it to say, who are you? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're sent by God or something like that? When does that happen? Because you see, we have been somehow ensconced into a world of almost numbness, where the avoidance of controversy and the absence of challenge is somehow the mark of spirituality, when in fact, Jesus was a provocateur. 
I'm not suggesting that the church of God march out and attempt to stir the pot. But I am suggesting that the church of God might grow into an even deeper following of Jesus in the way in which it walks, which should produce the same fruit that was produced by his walk. And what was his walk? Why were they all so stirred up? Who do you think you are? Are you sent from God? Are you the Messiah? Is that what you're saying? Tell us plainly. And how does Jesus reply? He said, I've already told you. You keep repeating the same question. I've already given the answer. Oh, but here's my answer. I've shown you, I've proved to you who I am by the works I do. Did you catch that? Who are you? I've proved to you who I am by the works I do. Ooh, works. We're not so big on works, are we, in our theology? We're afraid that we'll slip into the, to the long, deep, dark lagoon of papistry. But works, works are every bit a part of the walk of Jesus as his faith. I have shown you already by the works I do. You see, in this, Jesus is giving us a very important clue about how we follow after him and expand the kingdom of God. How so? Because we will earn the right to speak. We must earn the right to speak. If any person ever alive on this planet did not have to earn the right to speak, it would be Jesus, the one who created the whole. But he understood the depravity of human nature, the brokenness of our world, the inherent cynicism and suspicion of the human heart, unredeemed, and he modeled for us how even Jesus earned the right to speak. Why are they asking him if he's the Messiah? It's because of the works he did. Why are they giving him the time of day? It's because of what he did. Read the scriptures. Take out your yellow highlighter and see all the times in which he walked into a village. He came into a town and people's lives were transformed. They were elevated. People who cared nothing for God or knew nothing about the Messiah, but their child was made well. They found release from their shame. There was somebody who was redeemed. Someone was healed. Something good happened. Every town was changed. And then there was a crowd that followed him. We have been in the luxury of the last few hundred years in Western civilization, able to simply contend that if we had a Bible and waved it up high and spoke from it, that somehow the world would stop, take notice, and be cleansed. And there was a season when that worked pretty well because our civilization was formed by the foundations of Western culture. Like it or not, admit it or not, we live in a Western civilization that was in many ways formed and guided by the light of the gospel. But people have moved generation and generation away from that, so now they do not even know the story of Noah's Ark. They're watching a movie with Russell Crowe thinking that it's the Bible. They do not understand who Jesus is or the virgin birth, or any of the things about which the choir sang so beautifully last night. This is a foreign language. We might as well be speaking Hindi, or Farsi, or Swahili, to an English-speaking world that does not understand even the fundamentals. And no longer is the world prone to just stop because we say we have the word of God. We are going to have to live in a world where we earn the right to speak. Jesus had to do it. Why don't we have to do it? I have proved to you, he said, by the works I do. In this last August, 
in the United States, and I think in some other parts of the world, there was a very significant anniversary. It was the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., in which he famously said, I have a dream. That is recognized as perhaps one of, if not the most influential human speech of the 20th century. One, he was an American, so he had a platform on a global stage that pays attention to what happens in the country. He was a man who spoke with deep eloquence. He was a man who had already understood some great political movements of his time and was able to step into them. He was speaking at a seminal moment in American history, a, a, a just a unique moment, maybe never to be replicated, where hundreds of thousands of people gathered before the Lincoln Memorial, the great statue of the man called the Great Emancipator in the United States and many places of the world, on a bright and sunny day in that famous vision from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial looking across the mall all the way to the Washington Monument and the Capitol behind. It's an image etched in the human memory, and all around the world, people still quote from the speech and find it inspiring. And his very words changed the course of American history. They truly did. Every child in the United States, red or yellow, black or white, memorizes that speech. It's become the model of so much, and so much good has been done as a consequence of that word being there proclaimed. But why did Martin Luther King have traction? Why did anyone pay attention? Did you know he was the last of 10 speakers? Do you remember any of the other 10? Why Martin Luther King? Because everyone knew he had paid his dues. By the works of his life, he had been hosed down by the fire horses in Alabama. He had been in prison, and people had seen the photographs of his head twisted around his neck, pressed against the counter of a police station in Montgomery, Alabama, for no other cause than he was willing to dare the public transit system to give everybody a seat. He had already proved that he had the right to speak, and when he spoke, the world listened. I am giving you a secular example of what the church has often forgotten. As Jesus stood there, he said, I've already demonstrated for you who I am by the works I've done. He might as well have gone on to, say, to give a catalog of all the villages he'd been in, all the people who had found wholeness, all the hope that had been inspired by his sacrifice. This one who did not have a place to lay his head, though the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. This one who gave his whole self to the elevation and the redemption of the world he had made that knew him not. He might have spent an hour recounting for them all the things that they knew intuitively, but just were blocked from remembering. Suffice it to say, my works have already told you who I am. But he also said, you don't believe them. You don't believe what I have done and who I am because you're not my sheep. Now, this part of the passage is where most Church of God people just begin to bow their heads and run away. You know, this is the text that all those other people who have other ideas about theology come up. You know, eternal security and so on. I'm not here to debate that. I'm here to suggest that Jesus clearly made us understand. And the record gives us this warning. Even when you do phenomenal good things, not everyone is going to buy in or listen. You see, you can be Jesus and still have enemies. You can do the right things and arouse opposition. 
You can do good works that give you the right to speak, but people still will not hear what you have to say. I first visited India in 1987. I didn't want to go. Actually, I was invited to speak to a, a meeting of 500 Indian pastors of the Church of God in the southern state of Kerala at Cochin. The pastor who was supposed to go in my stead, his name was Dave Cox, had an appendectomy or something and couldn't go in at the last minute. He recommended that I be invited. I didn't even know Dave Cox hardly, though I'd heard of him, and we have some relationship just over the miles, but it was not someone I knew well, and how my name got to the table, I have no idea. But the organizers called me up and said, we need to have you come, and so on and so forth. I did not want to go. Why? Sorry, I don't like curry. I'm not that fond of cows wandering around everywhere unrestrained. Huge crowds of people with no room to space. I was raised as an only child, had my own room. The whole thing, nothing about India appealed to me. I didn't know anything about it really. I just, there was nothing about it that I wanted to go. And I went through a long period of, of wrestling with God. I said, thanks so much, but I don't think I'll make that trip. I'm all about traveling abroad if you can spell Paris. But I'm not going to India. But in the end, the Lord wrestled me to the ground. I promise you, he wrestled me to the ground. I've had this experience several times. It's, oh, talk about Jacob? <laughs> well, anyway, so he wrestled me to the ground, and I learned. I got up from the ground, and I knew if I didn't go to India, I would be disobedient. And so I went in 1987. And let me just tell you, it changed my life. It's another Banya-like experience. If I had known what I was going to experience, I might not ever have gone. But having gone, it changed my world. And I think it changed the world in India in some small ways, too, for the good. That said, I've been back many times and have lots of history there and work closely with many ministries. One of the things that we do in India, I want you to know that uh, there's a ministry there with which we're affiliated. They've planted 70,000 new churches in the last 15 years. Let me say that again. That's not a typo. 70,000 new churches in the last 15 years. In villages where the name of Jesus had never once been heard before. Never heard. There are 800,000 Indians who live in rural villages. Most of these people will never go more than 10 miles from the place they were born in their whole lifetime. It's not the India you see on television or in the media. That's urban India. There are 400 million more Indians, more people than live in the United States, just in India's cities. But 800 million more live in these rural villages quite isolated and past the, the train of modern development. And these 70,000 churches I've described are in those villages. And we're on track to have 100,000 villages planted, uh, churches planted in those villages by the year 2016. That said, when I go to India, I'm not spending too much time in the big cities, though every now and then I am. I am out in the outback in these far corners. On my last trip to India in November a year ago, I was invited to go to a village where the gospel had two years before been proclaimed for the first time. And the village was being transformed because the method of ministry is first to preach the gospel and then to bring help. And the villages live in destitute poverty. So they got clean water. They have a, a little school building, a church building, and, and a clinic that comes by. And they're learning how to read and write. And I could go on and on with all the good works that happened in the village. And the whole village was being transformed as they had embraced Jesus as Lord. And as they were being transformed, I was invited to come and see them for the first time. And so I came with my brother, Eric Rochester, who was the pastor. He's the mission pastor at the Indian Creek Church of God in Kansas City. And as we were traveling, just the two of us, by 
uh, overland van for four or five hours from the place where we were staying out into this remote place. We got to the village, and as we got out of the van, the villagers ran around, hundreds of them. And they threw rose petals and things out. It's part of the custom. It, it's, it's not just over the top. It makes us feel very uncomfortable as Westerners because we're not used to all the, the pomp and circumstance. But it's their custom to honor a visitor to the village by doing this. So we're doing that. And then they have it organized in the town square. They put up a kind of a tent. And, and we're shielded from the sun. And hundreds of people crowd the tent. And the children got up to sing some songs and to thank us and to welcome us. And, and, and their connection is they believe, they understand, or they have concluded that as a consequence of our investments and partnership in India, the gospel came to them and they're celebrating. And they're showing us all the things in the village, how life is better. And they're so excited about Jesus as Lord. They, they love him and they know him and they trust him. And in the middle of the children's program, a whole gang of 20 and 30-something young Hindu men with rippling muscles, part of a Hindu fundamentalist gang, burst into the tent and started yelling and screaming in the Tamil language. I could not understand, but by their gestures, I knew this was not a happy moment. And the children began screaming and running away. And the women who were segregated on the other side, they all began to run away. And the men seemed to evaporate. And then there was just my translator and the two of us up on the front. And this gang leader, this man with fire in his eyes and, and huge animosity, I mean, he was demonic in a way. I mean, you could just, his face was disfigured with hatred and anger. And he sees the translator, the man who was our Tamil guide, and he sees him like this and just was yelling at him. And I just said, we're not letting that happen, and started to stand up. And the translators pushed me away and said, get in the van. Get in the van. I said, we're not leaving you here. He said, get in the van. Jesus will handle it. Eric and I stepped back. The van was right there. We, we walked out, and then a tall man walked in, head and shoulders above the crowd, an Indian man, who tend to be of small stature, the Indians do, but this man, an Indian, was taller than the most. He walked in, and when he walked in, a, a, a path was created in the angry crowd. He was the pastor of that place. He came in, and he stood in the place of where the translator was, and he said to the gang, he said, if you have a problem, you deal with me. Let everyone else go. I sat there just from a distance watching it. I've never seen anyone more Christ-like in my whole life. He stood for the whole day. He stood and was willing to take a blow, if necessary, that his people would be saved. As he spoke to them, no one took a punch. There was no physical violence except the, the spirit of animosity that surrounded him. He stood in the middle as the crowd gathered around, shaking their fists, yelling and screaming. And then just out of a page of scripture, I watched him. As they became worked up into a frenzy, he walked through the crowd as they were yelling at each other and walked out just like Jesus in Nazareth in a different day. We met him down the road. And I said, what was that about? said, when the gospel comes to a village, the villagers, all their lives are changed up. Everything is improved. Every dimension of their life gets better. Their family lives get better. They learn to turn away from drugs and alcohol, things that are ravaging them. They learn about the power of God to heal and to intervene. 
They learn that they have a future, that God is for them, not against them, unlike the Hindu gods that may slay them at any moment. They tear down their Hindu idols, which is a profitable business, Hindu idols, because the priest caste makes the idols and causes the people to pay a pretty penny. And when you bring a sacrifice to the idol, it's the priest and that whole apparatus, the temple society, that gets the benefit of that meat, which they sell later in the market. When you read about the Corinthian letter, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? I want you to know that's not just an ancient text. In India today, that's real life. And the economic dislocation consequent to the doing of good in the village made those people rise up and say, who do you think you are? What do you think? You've been sent by the gods or something to change us up? We're Indians. We're Hindus. Leave us alone. And the pastor said, we've already told you who we are. We are servants of the Most High God in Jesus Christ the Lord. And our works have told you who we are. And it's the works that incensed them. But on the other half of the crowd, drew them to Jesus. What I'm describing to you is not just a faraway phenomenon. It's real life where we live, you and me today. They picked up their stones and they were going to throw Jesus because he stood there again. And as they are picking up their stones, imagine Jesus standing at the front of the crowd angry. They've got rocks in their hands and he could, if he allowed his imagination to run wild, he could feel the brunt of their jagged edge against his flesh, ripping it open. What would it be like to be stoned? Can you imagine the journey of Stephen the martyr? And Jesus stood in the same place. And as they raise their stones to throw, he gives them a timeout. Whoa, whoa, timeout, he says. At my father's direction, not in my own initiative. No, I'm the word become flesh. At my father's direction, I have done many good works among you. For which one of these are you killing me? For what good that I have done are you now seeking to take my life? The crowd, I have to believe, was shocked. Well, or, uh, um, uh, uh, we're not killing you for any of the good you've done. We know about all the good you've done. We're killing you because of what you say. You being a mere man claim to be God. Of course, his hour had not yet come. And he would not then be stoned. But in time, they would nail him to a cross. But hear this. Every person that participated in the crucifixion of Christ, indeed those present and those by extension, all of humanity, all of us know that even as he was nailed to the cross, it was unjust because we know the good he did. And even those that stood at the foot of the cross in the flesh had to recall as they watched him hang to his death that, wait a minute, that widow in Nain has her son restored. That blind man in Jericho can see. That woman caught in adultery is set free to walk a clean and pure new life. That teaching on the mount is like the which of no one has ever heard before. Those people who had no food were fed from 12 baskets of food, five fish and two loaves that netted 12 baskets left over. And on and on and on, their mind was flooded with the wonder and the beauty and the holiness of how Jesus lived. Which suggests to me 
that we can earn the right to speak, and we will be heard. It doesn't mean you won't escape trial and difficulty. But if we are to suffer, let it be suffering borne by the lens of having done a good work. Being secure in our own selves that we have been a people that have only longed for a better day for our people, for our country, for our community. Jamaica. It's a beautiful place. In just a few days, I've already been able to see that. Not only is it a beautiful place, but there is something about the culture here that is unique. Caribbean culture is unique on the world stage, but even in Jamaica, I think within the Caribbean, there are some unique properties. This is a nation with a proud and noble legacy. You are the descendants of people who have courage and nobility and people who have stood forward and tall. This is a nation that has been formed in many ways by values brought from the other parts of the world. There's so much of the fading light of the British Empire here in the way in which the streets are drawn and the walled gardens are found behind the gates. There's so much about the way in which Africa is represented here in the vitality and the power and the wonder of life, full and free. There's so much about other cultures that have spoken into it, but for all of its wonder and for all of its potential, for all of its history, you and I both know this is a country in some places on its knees where the economy is desperate, where people long for a better life and wonder if it would be better to be under the rule of Great Britain again. There are people here who are trafficking in human flesh. 41, 41 right now rescued in Jamaica who were being sold into sexual slavery. I read the news. Right now, today, 41. There are six, course, there are six cases in Jamaican courts right now about trafficking in human slavery where young girls and women from the villages far away from the cities are lured into the promise of jobs and prosperity where the tourists come, but instead Stanley find themselves sold. This is a country where people long to have justice, but where there are sad stories of police who intervening in the human trafficking trade, instead of actually doing good, bribe the persons who are the perpetrators and receive $10,000 US just so they don't bring the case up. In a world like this, what should the ministry of the church be? A lot of our time is spent in the church of God, and this is true everywhere in the church of God, organizing. We're a people who've always been afraid of organization, but think about all the organization we have, the boards and the committees and the names and so on. But when you read the Acts of the Apostles, for what was the church organized? What is the famous passage about the organization of the church when the believers finally stopped and took a deep breath and realized, we can't just go out on the streets and preach. We've got to also do more. We'll have to organize to an end. What was the point of the organization? It was to feed the poor, the widows and the orphans. The deacons were appointed to help distribute resources materially to those who were economically dispossessed. Now step back and look, and I'm not speaking about the church in Jamaica, I don't know enough, but I can tell you worldwide in the Church of God, there are a lot of organizations that spend a lot of time and money and energy planning meetings and services and how we're going to do this and how we're going to do that, 
And there are not many committees organized for the help of the poor. And that is where somehow we've missed our boat sailing to the other side. When our first object becomes the helping of this broken world so that we earn the right to speak to persuade people that Jesus is the Messiah, when that happens, the Holy Spirit's power will sweep once more. In the church I pastored most lately at Madison Park, a great, great congregation that I love still so deeply. You know, I lost my house to a fire two years ago. My wife and I lost everything. Our house burned down to the ground, and she and I stood in our front yard with our two sons that were still living at home at the time two years ago, and we had nothing, nothing but the clothes that we were wearing. We lost everything else. And our church family rallied around and gave us food and clothing and a place to stay. I love them deeply. Over the years, though, as the church was growing and maturing and and we built a big new building and so on. We spent a lot of time, and, and I think properly so, in developing the campus of our new church property. And it's, it was designed to be a community center and a conference center for the whole city to meet needs in our city. It was not built as a, as a worship center for the church. No, the church meets there to worship. But it was built as an instrument, an instrument and a gift to the community of Anderson that did not otherwise have any place to meet. And to do things. So many things come to Anderson now for the good that never came before because they can come to Madison Park, a venue where it can take place. But in that, we have a ministry at Madison Park called Dove Harbor. Dove Harbor is a ministry, it's a shelter for homeless women and children. In the United States, a great problem, so. And in the continuum of care, there are many emergency shelters where if you're a woman who's been beaten by her husband or abused in some way, you can. You can go to an emergency shelter and you can stay there for 30 days, but it's only for 30 days and then you're thrown right back into the same situation you were before. It's called the continuum of care. And we recognize that in that continuum of care in the whole state of Indiana, a woman who was homeless and destitute or may be subject to abuse by a very sad man had no way to go forward. They could only be rescued for a moment, but thrown right back into the cauldron. So we opened up Dove Harbor where a woman and her children can live in an apartment at the church's expense for up to a year and a half while they are re-encouraged to learn how to manage their lives and to stay away from deadbeat guys. And everyone is also introduced to Jesus. And the people who are saved there, so amazing story. All this background to say, as we built the new building, we still have Dove Harbor. We also have an adoption agency where we provide Loving Christian homes for children that are adopted. You can kind of understand where maybe that came from. But those things cost money. And when we're paying off the new building and we have so many demands for our youth group and should we buy new choir robes and so on and so forth, some dear sweet saints in the church said, we need to close Dove Harbor. We need to close the Miriam Project. That's the adoption agency. We need to save those monies that are just flowing out the door. They're black holes. They'll never support themselves. And, and we've got to take care of our own. I love these people, but I had to stand up and say, do you hear the sound of your own voice? Dove Harbor is the church. If we never had another choir robe, it will not be too soon. If we never had another this or that that we think is so necessary, if we didn't spend one more hour talking about whether or not we should use the hymnal or not, it won't matter. But those women, those women are destined for hell if we do not open a way. 
Who are you? Who do you think you are? Last story. I grew up in a church in Seattle that I loved and loved me. As a child, I was taken into their arms, given a name, given a place, given a future. They believed in me, and they called the best out of me. And when the world around me at school wouldn't think I was much, when I went to church, people said, you are born to be somebody. They taught me up in the way. They raised me up in the church of God. I can recite the hymns by wrote the 1953 Church of God maroon-colored hymnal with which I was raised. On New Year's Eve, I get friends together, and we play a parlor game, and this is what it is. You call out a number, and I'll tell you what hymn it is. Number 317, it's great as thy faithfulness. Number 262, it's a child of God. Number 16, when morning gilts the skies. Don't mess with me. I know the Church of God. But... I became the pastor of the church that raised me up on the corner of 39th and Woodland Park Avenue, a building that my grandparents helped build. My grandmother, who threw away her gold wedding band when the preacher said, we don't wear gold, she threw it away and never wore another piece of jewelry in her life. We weren't just peripheral to the movement. I have to say as a side note that my grandmother never wore jewelry, but she had hats like you can't believe. <laughs> and I thought, it's a way she's expressing herself. I became the pastor of a church that I loved and had loved me, and I grew up believing was the answer to all of Seattle's problems. And in a way it was, still is. And if people would just come in the door and we and could taste the love of our pie social and our Christmas choir program and the way we sing those hymns with gusto, why, why everything would be fine. The church began to grow as I was the pastor, and we ran out of room, and we had to put some more pews in the back. But the city of Seattle is very scrupulous about matching seats to parking places. And so the city intervened and said, you cannot add new seating in your building until you get some off-street parking. We didn't have any off-street parking. The building was there since 1906. It was built when it was a cow pasture. Now it's in the middle of the city. Well, we owned a house behind the church, that we decided we would tear the house down and get 21 parking places, which would allow us, on a ratio of one to four, to seat 84 more people. And that was our ambition. We did a song and dance with the city and so on, but in the end ran into a brick wall. And in the city of Seattle, there are neighborhood councils that have huge leverage, and we had to have the approval of the Fremont Community Council to be able to get that house torn down. Because in Seattle, there's a law that says the housing preservation ordinance, and you cannot tear down residential housing because there's a housing shortage and replace it with something that's not residential. And so we had to get an exception to the rule. And the community council would not give us the exception. We were up against the wall. I couldn't understand it because we were the lighthouse. We're the people that are here to save you from hell, all you loser people in our neighborhood. And a woman named Lee Sutterman, a Jewish woman who was the president of the Fremont Community Council. She came to have a meeting with me one day in my office. One of those moments like my wedding day, I'll never forget, but for different reasons. She came in and she said, Jim, I have something to say to you. Yes, Lee, we had had interaction before. She said, I think you're a nice guy, I really do. Why, thank you, Lee, I appreciate that because you know we've had some testy interfaces and I'm glad to know that, that you think that I'm a nice guy at heart. I think the same for you. And she said, oh no, I know you're a nice guy and I think the people in your church are, are nice too. 
Well, thank you. And I want you to know that I understand that you want people to come here and that you think you have something to offer them. I get all that. Thank you. Yes, that's what we believe. She said, but I want you to come outside with me for a minute. And she took my arm out of my office to the corner where the church stood. And it was a five-way corner. You could see things from many perspectives on that corner, right in front of the church. She pointed out a house, 3912 Woodland Park Avenue North. Well, who lives in that house? Do you know? Cross the street. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know. She said, I know. That man has multiple sclerosis, is confined to a wheelchair. How do you think he gets food and groceries? I don't know. I'll tell you how. The Fremont Community Council brings him food and groceries. Now, over across the street here at 3924 Woodland Park, who lives there? I don't know. Well, I know that's a woman who's been left and abandoned by the deadbeat husband that's not providing for her. She's got five little kids, and she doesn't know how she's going to get by, and she's trying to find a job, but she can't find anyone to care for the kids, so she can't go out and get a job, and what's she going to do? I said, boy, that's a tough one. She said, well, I'll tell you what she's doing. Our people at the community council are watching her children so she can go get a job. And she went down and identified everyone in the neighborhood and looked right at me. I didn't know any of the stories, and she said, here's the deal. You will never tear that house down to get a parking lot. And furthermore, if your church closed its doors and never sang another song in this building again, it wouldn't make any difference. Because you don't do anything that makes any difference here. And I believe you're nice people and want you to be able to sing your songs and do your trip. But until you start doing something for this neighborhood, it's a no-go. I was so angry when she said that to me. I was absolutely frosted. How dare she speak to me that way? Does she not know that my grandfather came and helped put the bricks on this building? Before she was born, these people were in here praising God and serving him. But as I cooled down and got to my office, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and said, if Nebuchadnezzar can speak, she can speak. If I can use a donkey to talk to Balaam, you can hear her. You better be about the business of making sure the church changes the world. Because if people are to believe in my son, you are going to earn the right to speak, and you're going to prove it by the works you do. I made a vow that day, and I can tell you exactly when it was. It was in 1984. I made a vow that day that I would never pastor a church again, that anyone could ever honestly say that to me. And folks, as a movement, we have many, many outposts around the world. Every congregation is an outpost. Every member of the Church of God is an outpost. And we better be changing the world. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, a great holiness brother, once said, faith and works must follow each other step after step. First faith, then works. First faith, then works. First faith, then works. Then faith, then works. Then faith, then works. Until he said, it becomes as a man walking, indistinguishable one from the other. And this is the pattern of our Lord Jesus. And so at the last, let me give you another text with which you can wrestle as you leave this place today. This is from Luke chapter 7. And in this passage, 
Jesus, in verse 18, is going to have an intersection with the disciples of John the Baptist. Luke 7 and 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Oh, is that the same question? You know it is. Who's asking the question this time? The followers of John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin. He's getting cold feet. What are you doing? You're not doing the church's work. Get out there and put on some bear skin and eat locusts. Are you really the Messiah? I'm beginning to wonder. He's sending his disciples to find out. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At the very time Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind, then, while causing them to wait for a moment, he looks at them and says, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Do you not see it's the same answer? When Jesus is challenged about who he is, how does he reply? Come and see. Look around you. Go back and tell my cousin John, son of Elizabeth, who leaped in the womb for joy when he came into contact with I in my mother's womb. You tell that guy, here's my answer. This is what I'm doing. The Church of God in Jamaica, at its turning a pain, has a chance. And I know by the Spirit's power, you have a chance in every place that you call home, in every place the Church of God is named, to take stock of what can we do. And it may require you to take great risks, and it may change up the way you allocate resources, and it may take your time and invest them in different things than you normally thought to produce a healthy church. But if you're on the front lines reclaiming the world for the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit will be with you, empower you, and bless you. And the church that's engaged in the footsteps of Jesus is a church that's worthy the name. We live up to what we're called. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Because I, the Lord God of heaven's armies, have established it. I leave that with you because we are a people who believe in the present reality of the kingdom, and the increase of that kingdom will not abate, and hell can rage, and the world can scour, and all kinds of people can pick up stones. But we are a part of the kingdom of God that is reclaiming the world until Jesus comes back. And you can be sure and certain, the world will push back, but you will prevail. Our Father, we're so thankful for this noble assembly, for its high calling, and its very rich history. We pray that as new days dawn, that your Holy Spirit will open eyes and ways for these precious hearts to know how they can be like Jesus, proclaiming his divinity and lordship by the works they do and earn the right to speak. And we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.